You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp, along with your doctor, Esteban. Marconi, Emeritus. That's right, the Emeritus. And here we are on Brave New Radio on another wonderful evening. Although as we, as we record this over Zoom, it is daytime. But you don't know that, do you, listener? You're shaking your no, head. No, they don't. And then next week, it'll be dark daytime. That's, That's right, because we are doing this on our October 19th. Our listeners yes. on the radio will hear this in November. And our podcast friends will listen to this forever so but we have a great guest today who'll be on shortly mary joe kachka who's a tour manager and accountant and who's done a ton of stuff in the biz but before we do that we should remind you go to musicbiz101wp.com sign up for that newsletter so you know when our radio shows are and these podcasts are out follow us on the instagram twitter Facebook at musicbiz101wp and of course the podcast is on itunes and the soundcloud should we give thanks sir Yes, we should. So let's do it. We're going to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management. With artists like Dave Matthew, Three Doors Down, Kiss St. Vincent, there's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. CPA.com when you're ready. And our thanks go to Christine. Oi. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped many professionals all over the world, including the University of William Patterson. Many yeah. plan out for their retirement. She's done great things. When you're thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, think about the Forefront Group and then F-O-U-R, Forefront Group, and go to christine.they at forefront.com. Leave the last oi off for savings. We are potentially very close, potentially, to managing your band's seventh edition. Yes, it looks like it's going to be a reality. Yes, it may be a reality show. We will find out, and we will say no more for fear of jinxing this because we're, we seriously we have a very big agent working with us, and we're expecting an advance in the high 11 <laughs> figures. Yes. And the festival will be on the far left, but that's okay. And we should remind everyone that University of William Patterson has been ranked one of the best universities that has a music business program ever by a fellow named Bill Board. Bill Board, that's right. So we're excited about that. So here we are. Here we're here. Mary Jo Kaczka here. And that is the, what, what is that? That's the Scottish way of, no, that's the Polish way of saying it, right? Kaczka. Yes. Kaczka. The way you say Kaska is another. Yes. American that's the way I here. always grew up saying it because it was the easy the easy way for people to wrap their tongue around it. And it means duck, like the bird. Oh, okay. Not look out behind you, duck. No, like literally if you go to Poland, you can find kaczka on a menu. Oh, wow. Very good. So um, Dr. Stabon is going to begin with the third degree, Mary Jo. Okay. So go Dr. Stabon. Okay, so 
not to get into exactly what you do yet, but why did you have this interest to do what you do? So I don't know. <laughs> I think it's genetic. I don't know. Like I was thinking about this. Uh, somebody else had asked me and my earliest memory of being intrigued <clears throat> by behind the scenes was maybe when I was about somewhere between six and eight, maybe growing mm -hmm. up in Denver. My mom is from Edinburgh, Scotland, right? So at one point when I was a kid, the Scots guards, which are like the big bagpipe troop that's mm -hmm. military, were touring the world. And my mom had grown up with their pipe major. So we went down and we saw the show. And then afterwards we went back into the bowels of the Coliseum to, uh, to say hi to her friend. And I remember distinctly like going back in these like corridors and there was like road cases everywhere and, you know, going into the dressing room and they were luckily all changed out of their kilts by that time. And, um, and just being so fascinated. Mm. And, and that I just like, after that, I was like, just intrigued. And then a few years later, maybe I was about 10. My parents used to listen to a Sunday night radio show and the big promoter in Denver, who was Barry Fay, he had a company called Fayline, right. was talking about promoting concerts, how he got started and promoting concerts at Red Rocks. Mm -hmm. And at 10 years old, I just distinctly remember something clicking in and saying to my mom, that's what I want to do. And she remembers that. She brings it up all the time. She was like, you have known what you wanted to do since you were a kid. And, and, and plus I was that kid that I, I'm the oldest of five. So I was always producing birthday parties for my, my, my siblings, like down to, you know, designing the um, invitations and right. would write a time schedule of like the games. And when we would do the cake and stuff without even knowing that's a thing. So right. <laughs> I think it's just in me. <laughs> right. So that Barry Fahey, Barry Fahey mentions a promoter, uh, wrote yeah. a book. Oh, wow. I'm holding it in my hands right now, Backstage Pass, which I bought on Amazon a year ago. And the fun thing was, it's an autographed copy. And he died, you know, 13 years so. ago, something yeah. like that. Yeah, right, 07 or something. But I have this autographed copy of his book, which is called Backstage Pass, which is an interesting book. And he is one of those yeah. legendary promoters yeah. of almost the... Right after the Bill Graham, yes. and yeah. I think he was a contemporary of Bill Graham, and they might he might have hey, worked for him. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. terrified of him when I first started <laughs> production yeah. running at Red Rocks. It was for Faye. <laughs> I was right. terrified of him. So you didn't want to be a musician. You wanted to be in I, the back in the background. I am. A, I was a musician. Uh -huh. So little known fact about me: I was classically trained on the accordion, wow. and my teacher. Uh, so the universe the DU, the University of Denver, their mm -hmm. music school is one of the few in the country where you can go all the way to a PhD in the accordion. So my, yeah, so my- UC, UC Denver. Correct. Wow. No, 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 not UC Denver, Denver, DU. So University oh, okay, Denver. Denver. Yeah, yeah, it's a private okay. college. And um, really good music school, really good business school and law school. Like that's what they're known for. Mm -hmm. So my teacher was a PhD candidate there. And some years later, he ended up being a soloist with the national orchestra. So he was like really pushing me wow. to become a music major. Um, but you know, back in the day, it wasn't cool to play the accordion. Now it's super no. cool to play the accordion, yeah. but it wasn't then. And I, I actually can play a polka, but I was trained on like classical pieces and I was studying wow. theory by the time I was 16. And yeah. It just wasn't, I wasn't a punk rock. Like I was like, I wanted right. to do cool stuff and the accordion was not punk at that point. So, and, but I kind of always had this, I liked putting stuff together as well. Mm -hmm. So that kind of, I think it was a, a little bit of rebellion against my parents wanting me to play the accordion, right. but also truly being interested in loving logistics and loving that. So it was like, I always was into music in some way. So, um, if the accordion had been cooler, maybe I, I would have been a musician. <laughs> right. But I'm also always more comfortable behind the scenes. Right. And so you, always, you yeah. went to school to be an accountant or you? No, I went to journalism school at CU Boulder. <laughs> oh. so I wanted to write or be in marketing or something, right. but yeah, ended up doing this. I, I had a work study grant. And so of course I found a job at the music library and ended up mm -hmm. as a, mm -hmm. a, uh, college marketing rep for capital emi 
which right. basically meant I got paid. I got like a $200 a month stipend to put on listening parties, but I got to go to all the concerts, right. you know, with the, the sales rep in town. Yeah. And, uh, and that was part of our job is like, we had to take meet our bands and take a picture and send it to the office. So they knew we went and, uh, right. and I got to go backstage and see how, again, going backstage and seeing how all that worked and hanging out with the people. And, you know, I, I didn't have the option to party with the bands or anything. Not that I, that wasn't really in my head, but even if it was, I wouldn't have because I was representing the label. And mm -hmm. so going in a professional capacity really, and then really drove the point home to me that like, this is a job. And I also realized that I was really more intrigued by the touring people or the local promoters doing the production mm. as, as opposed to the label side of things. Right. So, right. yeah. And I, um, I ended up, so yeah, I was, a, <laughs> I was a journalism, I was in the school of journalism and mass communications, but I had just declared marketing. So, right. <laughs> you know, and, and here I am, but no, the accounting thing, people assume I have an accounting degree because I do tour accounting, but I'm just, I just love numbers. Excel right. and in and, and one of those people that when I tour internationally take it upon myself to get really into the meat of like international tax entertainment laws and I'm just a, kind of geeky that way mm -hmm. so. so what was you what what do you feel was your biggest break to get you to where you are now there were my biggest break okay my big it's kind of crazy but early on, my biggest break would be um, I was working at Wild Oats Market in Denver, which is a precursor to Whole Foods. I, I think that actually it became Whole Foods uh, in Capitol Hill in Denver. And I was, uh, oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, was actually not Capitol Hill. It was somewhere else in Denver. I was managing the deli department, <laughs> like miserable. I was like, what am I going to do? I was like 21 or 22. And uh, just through no fault of my own, it was just politics of, you know, a store. I ended up getting let go and, uh, you know, found out later on that, that that store manager's husband now had my job. So, you know, and, uh, but that night I was like, all right, I'm going to go to this bar where my friend is bartending. And uh, I walked in and he said, how's it going? I said, I just got fired. And everybody's like, yay, and starts buying me drinks. And uh, the and this uh, bar was a place where there was a lot of the, the local alternative radio station twice a week. It was like a place where bands would do radio promo, what we would call radio promo. So they would go in and a band who was playing in town would come in, play three songs. It would be broadcast on the alternative radio station. It was part of their you know, their marketing with their label. Mm -hmm. So it happened to be one of those nights and the local sound engineer who uh, kind of babysat the sound system there came up to me, said, uh, oh, I heard that you just got fired. You know, what do you want to do? And slightly chatting me up. And he said, honestly, I just want to work for a promoter, work in the music business. And he said, well, I have a friend who kind of is really connected in communication and events and all that stuff, you should talk to him. And he set up a meeting with this guy. And this guy was actually an advertising promotion. And uh, I happened to be walking into his office just as he had gotten a month long project with the new baseball team in town, the Colorado Rockies. And he took one look at me and said, do you wanna have a month long working, in, uh, working interview? And I'm like, sure. So I worked with him for a month. And we got to chat and he got to know what I liked and what music I was into. And he also got to know that like I was really organized, got to see how I worked. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that month, he said, I have a friend who works for an events company. They produce private events. They also do some radio station festivals. They're looking for um, a receptionist. And I know you don't want to answer phones, but trust me, everything moves so quickly in this business that within six months, you're going to be doing something else. Mm -hmm. you should let me call and you should take the job. And I did. And within four months, <laughs> I was the back, I was the production office coordinator on all of their um, music festivals. They were producing radio station festivals, like, you know, a like classic rock fest for the, you know, the local classic rock station and around the region. 
Uh, and I had a boss who took me under his wing and mentored me and taught me how to edit contracts, write proposals. And that was, I would say that led to every single thing that I've done. And then simultaneously, a friend of mine got a job as the runner coordinator for Faye concerts. And so I was sort of filling in on, on weekends when she needed an extra runner. So, yep. All right, so you just said you became a runner coordinator. My for, friend was the runner coordinator, so she could okay. slot me in to shows at Red Rocks, like on weekends, okay. if I was, or if it was a slow time for the production company I was working for, she could slot me in on that end. So I was kind of learning at the same time in two different areas. Mm -hmm. Ex explain what that is for some people who are, might be a little unclear about what that position is. A production is. runner? Yeah. Yeah, runner coordinator. So she was the, so my friend was the runner coordinator. So a production runner is, um, so if you're on tour, <laughs> When you show up in a city, you, you may request one. I mean, depending on the size of the tour, it could be from one to 10 runners. And um, a runner is somebody locally who knows the area, who's trustworthy, good driving record, who runs and gets stuff for you. So they might take your laundry to the laundromat, um, to the fluff and fold to be done that day. You might need office supplies and you, you, know, you give them petty cash to go get them. But it is, you're working very much in conjunction with the tour. Um, and you're working immediately under the top people on the tour. So the production manager, the production coordinator, or the tour manager. So you get to meet directly um, these people on these huge tours. And you, it's a, they really rely, a good runner is such an asset when you're on the touring side, because they know not only do they know the city, they have built up relationships to help you. Like they might be able to get a discount at that music store because they're running for all the shows. You know, they, they build up their own local relationships. So my friend uh, had a job at, at uh, Fave Concerts as the runner coordinator. So she just had this, um, just had a group. She had a list of people that she knew were trustworthy runners. And if there was a show and they were looking for five runners or whatever, then she would make the calls and do all the scheduling. But that, you know, once in a while there would be a show, even though I had another job at a production company, there'd be some huge weekend show like the Stones that need 15 runners. Mm -hmm. And so her normal core people could, you know, she needed to supplement. So she'd call me. Right. So that was my biggest break. A little bit of a long story, but it's like that it was total kismet. <laughs> so what was the first um, tour that you were considered the boss? Oh, the first tour I was, well, the first tour I was considered the boss. My first tour was the Warp Tour and I ran the production office. So I wasn't the boss, but all the bands had to come through me to get, <laughs> to get stuff. <laughs> so I was like the gatekeeper for Kevin Lyman and the tour manager and, you know, so, but the first tour I was considered the, the actual boss would have been, I did some tours as an assistant tour manager. So I was, I was traveling with the band and running their world, but the whole tour would have been, I'm going to totally date myself, Love and Rockets mm -hmm. in maybe 1999 or 2000, mm. maybe 2000. Yeah. So it was Love and Rockets. So I had been the assistant tour manager for Bauhaus on the resurrection tour when they hadn't toured for like 20 years and mm -hmm. came back. So I took care of the band. I traveled with the band. And they had their, you know, Peter Murphy was going to do a solo tour and then Love and Rockets. They had their spinoffs, you know, and the, the other three guys in the band were Love and Rockets. Well, both of them were going to be doing tours within the next year. And I ended up being the tour manager for both. So the first one was Love and Rockets. And um, that was a trial by fire. <laughs> so that was my first try. I was completely the tour manager in charge of. Uh -huh. uh, Okay, so I'm going to ask you the $50 question for mm -hmm. half our audience. Mm -hmm. and that was, as a woman, was it difficult being taken seriously? No. And the reason I say that is because, and I know many, many women that are colleagues and friends of mine that have had really challenging time. Mm -hmm. But I happened to have some really, I mean, I never had any women mentors. I didn't know any other women who were tour managing. I knew plenty of women who were working locally in Denver. There were a couple women riggers. They were, you know, Lori Tierney was here and she was a production coordinator and I kind of knew her, but like, I didn't have any, anybody, but I, you know, 
I came up with a bunch of really good men around me and they were the people that recommended me for gigs and pushed hard mm -hmm. against, you know, for management saying she's the right person. And um, I, I wouldn't say, you know, I, I would say on the touring side, I, I got, re I hate to say I got lucky because honestly, that's how it should be. Mm -hmm. Maybe other people just got unlucky, you know, but um, on the touring end of things, I worked with some amazing production managers and amazing managers who like never really came up that I, you know, there's a question that I could do something or couldn't do something because I was a woman. And in fact, they were, you know, I could think of a couple um, times where they were great allies to where, you know, say I had a production manager say to me, you know, I think, you know, I've seen this with our truck driver. He's not really strong. I think you might want to consider um, replacing him. Let's have a talk about it mm -hmm. rather than saying to me something like we need to replace the truck, you know, the, mm -hmm. the truck driver. Like I always had people that really phrased it to help put me in the driver's seat or make me a colleague. Now, mm -hmm. on the local level, I would I would get, you know, local promoters. Maybe there were club promoters and stuff that would be more sexist. Um, it would be really annoying when like they'd advance with me, call me darling. I'd be like, my name is Mary Jo, you know, or, right. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But I think sometimes I would, you know, use that to my, my, advantage. Yeah. <laughs> like, hi, can I get some more drink tickets? You know? <laughs> now, did you know any venue managers that were female? I don't mean club managers. I mean, some of the bigger manage bigger venues. In the bigger venues when i started stepping up into bigger venues i mean there were you know like like theaters and um there was maria zucker in detroit who was the first person i ever settled a show with um and she's now with live nation and does international touring she worked at clubs i can't remember the name of the promoter um but she worked at you know, a couple of clubs like Clutch Cargos and, but she also, she also repped and, and did stuff for the bigger shows, uh, theaters. Um, that's somebody that comes to mind immediately, mm -hmm. but I didn't know a lot of, of, of women venue managers or promoter reps right. in the early and, days. Uh, we have a, um, a shed here, PNC, mm -hmm. shed, a Live Nation shed mm -hmm. and so on. And uh, this spring was it Dave or last year? We had the uh, manager of the venue, mm -hmm. um, used to work for Live Nation too, actually. Name's escaping me now. But she was, yeah, she was here right a week or two before the, sh the COVID shutdown. Right, what was her name? She was on campus. I don't know. God. I just remember she didn't like you, that's all. There <laughs> ah. I can't remember she, if I know her, probably, because I've been through there a bunch yeah, of times. Well, well, before the end of the, airing here, we'll get the name, but um, she was talking about uh, the difficulty at times to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And she also has on the, the land that she's supposedly in charge of, there's the New Jersey State Police barracks. And there's, uh, of course, always the governor's office wanting to know what's going on because it's right down the Garden State Parkway and so on and so forth. And she was talking about the difficulties until she really just uh, made it emphatic that she was the boss. And not, not yeah. that she was a, a B-I-T-C-H or whatever, but she had to make it, she had to stick her neck yeah. out to make it emphatic that she was the one you're supposed to talk to. Yeah, I think for me, having had that early support of the men around me and the way they did it, like mm -hmm. it really helped set a tone for me to where it was okay to be in charge. I also, you know, the oldest of five and I have three really obnoxious brothers. So <laughs> it was never a hard thing for me to put on like the big sister voice if I had to <laughs> and go into that mode. But um, yeah, I mean, I think for me being taken seriously, a lot of times it was, especially in the early days, it was, it was more from the promoter side, especially when I was in club dates, you know, you'd walk in and be like, Hey, darling. It's like, Oh, you know, like they wouldn't, they would just automatically assume that you were a girlfriend or the backup singer. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but not that you're in charge, you know? So okay. for me, it was more challenging um, on the promoter side. And then, you know, sometimes 
I would advance if I was sending an email and use MJ instead of Mary Jo and see if the tone was different. And that would happen sometimes. A lot of times it didn't, ah. but sometimes it would. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I am very, you know, when I advance, I'm very straightforward and very logical. I do a lot of bullet points, like boom, 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 boom. And, and uh, I guess that in their brain was very male. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so okay so how did you get into actually take saying that you wanted to do the accounting as well so on you know i think most tours until you get to a certain level where you, you just need a separate tour accountant from a tour manager the tour manager does the, the settling of the shows and the tour accounting and i love i just love dealing with the numbers and Excel. Mm -hmm. And one of my early tours, uh, I'd been tour managing for a few years. And uh, my first time really steering the ship on a tour in Europe, I've been, I'd been to Europe, but I'd never been the tour manager slash tour accountant. Um, The, so the, the business manager, something that's, that's usually done is that if, if it's not a huge business management firm that has an office uh, in Europe, if you're playing Europe, they'll hire an affiliate um, to, to file the tax paperwork and kind of prepare everything. And this band had not. And so when I was walking in, it, when I was advancing with promoters, they would ask me, um, you know, for example, in uh, Sweden, there's a specific... Um, documents from the tour, uh, specific invoices that you can turn in, that you can lower your taxable income. Uh, they can take them off the guarantee and reduce your taxable income for, it's just expenditures for your days in Sweden, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, say you have your bus out for 30 days and you're in Sweden for three days, you take your entire bill, your entire bus invoice, divide it by 30, then multiply that by three, that amount you can deduct from your guarantee so you're lowering your, lowering your taxable income. And it's pretty hefty entertainer tax. Well, I learned about this on this tour just on the fly from advancing because nobody had done it. Nobody had told me. Mm-hmm. So I just took it upon myself to learn as I went and, um, and uh, started calling all the promoters and said, what do you need from us? And called management and I said, hey, I'm pulling this together myself. Did You know, you didn't have anybody do it on this end. And by the end of the tour, they did have somebody to give me a hand, but I had almost done it. And I think that's what really clinched it for me because I was so fascinated by just all the machinations that go into like every different country and then like mm-hmm. US. And, and also then I got really into budgeting and it's an, kind of an art and settling is, you know, kind of a dance. And it's it's very much settling is also very much built on your relationship with the promoters. You know, and and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I just really like dealing with the numbers. Numbers don't lie, <laughs> you know. Right. So right. I mean, not that you know, it's like numbers also don't call you at two in the morning for a cigarette lighter. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so <laughs> Are they, the name is. Uh, did you find a name, Dave? Joel Aronovich. Jarell Aronovich. Jarell Aronovich, GM of the PNC Arts Center. I'm not I sure if I ever dealt with her. Mm. Anyway, so what was your first settlement on a date that didn't meet the guarantee? Well, you you always meet the guarantee because that's why it's a guarantee. Well, okay, uh, yeah, I meant notebooks. <laughs> I'm sorry, you met the guarantee. Well, I don't know. We do. You know- always get your guarantee. We do know a kiss show that didn't meet the guarantee. Hmm. Uh, that Aaron had showed us once, Dave. Really? What, what you're saying didn't meet the guarantee, or you're saying the promoter lost money? Yeah. The band's getting the guarantees. You're, you're talking about from the, yeah. promoter, the promoter side, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, in the early days, yeah, I'm sure that, like, you know, because there got to be a point where almost every deal that's done is a sellout deal. So, yeah. right. you know, if you're not selling out, or if you're not going to sell out, if you're not cutting some costs, like reducing your rider or something, um, then yeah, the promoter is going to lose some money. Although 
do they really lose money? <laughs> right. I'm sure there's, <laughs> especially if they own the venue, <laughs> right. there's probably some other revenue streams there. But yeah, even from early on, especially early on in like the club touring days, because the deal structures used to be, it used to be, uh, I don't know if I'm getting way too ahead of, of what you guys are have been talking about here, but it used to be more like plus deals. So there was a built-in promoter profit. And then all of a sudden it, it's somewhere along the road. It, I don't even remember when, but it switched to almost every deal being a versus deal. Mm. So the promoter stands to make more money, right? but they don't have that 15% promoter profit built in either. Right. So I, I don't know, pretty early on, like I was seeing, you know, the promoters taking, especially when I was working with like smaller bands. So mm-hmm. It happens, but I think that the way that, you know, I've had a lot of friends that are promoters, and I've worked for promoters, it, it kind of amortizes for them over shows, mm. you know, because a smaller mm-hmm. show might not do so well, but then they might blow out, you know, th- three, you know, they three right. nights in a theater with the same band where you load in once and load out once and mm-hmm. you made yeah. a ton of money. So, yeah. Now, do you see bands taking... Uh, pieces of things like concession stands and parking and and so on? Or is um, that- not so much concessions, I don't think. Although I have, uh, uh, I know that in certain deals, they might, you know, mm-hmm. they might do a creative deal with the agent and the, um, and the promoter in taking part of parking, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Because it could be said, you know, especially if the promoter owns the building and owns the parking, it could be said that that's why you're bringing them in. So that yeah, there's there's, I mean, there's all all sorts of deals that are are done creatively, or they work in bonuses, you know, if you hit a certain mark. So not really concessions that I know of, because mm-hmm. I think that's where if the promoter, you know, makes if the promoter owns the building like AG or Live Nation, like that's where they're going to make a good chunk. But I definitely, you know, there's definitely, especially on a larger level, you know, agents work out creative deals with the artist. And now that you have, you know, Live Nation and AG buying out full tours, you know, I'm sure that there's all sorts of revenue streams. I haven't actually done a tour where the whole tour has been uh, a Live Nation or AEG tour that's mm-hmm. been bought out. I have not done that um i've been pretty fortunate to work with bands that blow it out on their own <laughs> so. now do you think with this um with what you just said with a live nation tour an aeg tour mm-hmm. is there the need for an agent yes booking agent yes so you're on that side absolutely okay absolutely yeah i do i do because i think that the agents and I've been really fortunate to work with some really big agents that that really like, that's what they do. You know, like they get to know the band so well mm-hmm. and they can go to bat for them. And they also make you a part, you know, as a tour manager or production manager, you become part of that conversation. And then they're working together with you to build the tour and budget. And, and I do think there's something to be said for having an agent that's on the artist's side because they're working for the artist. There's no... Right. I mean, they have the relationship, but at the end of the day, they have the relationship with the promoters, but at the end of the day, you know, they're working for the artist. And like, you know, I've worked, oh God, one of the people that I worked for who's legend or that was an agent for an artist I've worked with that is just brilliant at that is Rod McSween. Like he was oh, one of the best people that I've ever dealt with. And I've worked with um, Emma Banks, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Marlene Tucci, and they just, man, what an asset they are to anybody's team, you know, and they grow with artists and they get to know them. So I do think there's a place for that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're on the artist team. So yes. And I, I love being able to go and have a relationship with an agent, you know, I'm on the phone with them mm-hmm. quite a bit and yeah, I do think there's a place for that. Yeah. Some people might not agree, but I absolutely do. Right. Um, do you see the role of a business manager expanding, has expanded over the last, let's say, 10 years? Business manager as in the accounting side? Yeah. What, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, we find uh, yes. with the one we know that he's now involved with just he, on the onset of merch deals and oh yeah, and endorsement deals and yeah, and so on yeah. and so forth. That I think so. Ten years ago, or so yeah, I think so. I mean, I I have, and that was really fortunate for me. Is the the artists that I've worked with, even from the early days, the business managers they had on their team have been very involved, probably even before. They were ahead of the curve on that. So that has helped me to be more involved. Like they, I didn't just feel like I was sending in receipts and settlements. Like I've, I've always, and maybe that's part of the reason I got so interested in, in tour accounting and, you know, it's, it's, I've always felt like part of the team. Um, but I do think it's expanded. They're not just an accountant, you right. know, they're, they're part of the team. Yeah. I would say that. And I find busy. I, in a way that probably has been more similar in the past to the way business managers deal with athletes and stuff, you know, yeah. much more involved, right. which makes sense. You know, yeah, many of them have um, not only the, you know, it's the entire entertainment field, which mm -hmm. includes athletes and so on. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of fun when you, you know, work with an artist that maybe share their agency and their business management with other people in other areas of entertainment, you know, because sometimes you end up crossing paths and as a tour manager, it's kind of cool to have that shared team. Right. Yeah. Right. Dave. Oh, oh enjoying sorry. I, I just told a great joke and I was muted. No. I'm really bummed. That was the best joke I've ever probably ever told and our <laughs> listeners aren't going to hear it. So too bad about that. Who is hiring you? Mary Jo, is it the manager, the agent, maybe a, a Nick Light, you know, somebody on the touring mm -hmm. division table? The, the, I mean, the manager is who actually hires you um, mm -hmm. on behalf of the artist, but you can get referred. I mean, I've been referred to at least half my gigs by agents. Mm -hmm. um, or sometimes I'll just get a random email and it'll be from an agent and uh, they'll say, hey, are you available? If so, can you send us your resume? you know, we're looking for somebody for this. Sometimes they'll tell you the artist. Sometimes they'll just say, hey, somebody's looking, send us your resume. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, it can come through the agent. It can come through business managers. Like business managers are very, a very strong recommendation. They might make, make res recommendations to management because, you know, if you're out there taking care of their money and you're wearing that tour accountant hat, that's really important, you know, because mm -hmm. they're part of the team. So yeah, but the actual the actual hiring will be through management. And, and sometimes the artist um, just trusts their management. And then once you're hired, you might have dinner with them to meet them. Sometimes the artist is an integral part of the interview process. Sometimes you got to meet with them before you can get confirmed. Yeah. So. That makes sense since you're the one actually mm -hmm. on the road the whole time. Yeah. And usually it's more of a vibe thing. They want to see mm -hmm. if they like you. And, the, and usually it's a bunch of, you know, questions or I don't know. How would you handle this? Right. You just tell them. And if, you know, you just have to be yourself. And if it jibes with them, it does. And if it doesn't, then it's not personal. I mean, they have to spend 24-7 with you for a while. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. now, are, so you paid, are you paid a fee for an, an entire tour or how does the structure work? It's different structures for different tours. Like, so in the U.S., typically in the past, it's been a fee per week. So that's how you work it is, you know, you're making this much per week. And then it would be, you know, you divide it by seven and kind of prorate it. If there's the end of the tour, there's a half week. For me, um, advancing, I would, I would work in, I would work out something with management that we agreed on that I would start getting paid full salary, however many weeks out to do um, advancing. Um, in the UK, when I lived there, it's standard to go by a day rate. So people will just do a day rate, which is kind of the same. They just, you know, because at the end of the day in the US, you're quoted a weekly rate or you're quoting a weekly rate, but you're still dividing it by that many days. Um, some tours do retainer in between. So it might be, um, it might be if you're off the road that they'll pay you however much you agree on you know, a percentage so that you're retained. You're not taking another job. That doesn't right. happen that much. 
something that's newer that I know more people are doing or being offered is especially if it's a long-term tour and it's, um, it's say it's an album cycle tour and you're definitely going to be on a whole year or maybe, you know, you could do it quarterly or every six months is, is working at a salary. And you say, okay, this is how much I'm going to get paid, you know, for this six months or for this year. And then you always know you're going to get the same paycheck. So there's no, there's, there's no mention of a retainer or anything. Mm -hmm. So it, it varies. And then, and then, you know, maybe with management, if you're on salary, you agree to what that means, what that covers. So it might be like, okay, this is going to cover 70 shows in one year. And if we do over that, we renegotiate or, you know, there's no, there's no cookie cutter, but those tend to be the three ways that people get paid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. All right. So we've, we've thrown out a lot of different terms mm -hmm. that we understand, but I'm sure there are are a number of people listening who might be foggy or trying to catch the context clues of things. Oh, and one thing you just brought up was advancing the show. Mm -hmm. You had said the show, I mean, sorry, the tour might start, mm -hmm. let's say April 12th, but mm -hmm. you might need to prorate that back a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever, mm -hmm. advance the tour. Explain Correct. what you mean when you're advancing the tour and then why you need, what kind of tour needs that a certain length of time. Right. So every tour, when you're building it, it's going to take some length of time to build it and advance it. So when you first um, get hired on, you're going to be just thinking about what's the production. You know, it could be as simple as it's a five piece band and we're bringing gear and setting it up and using everything that's in house, all the sound and lights that are in every venue. And that's it. If you're on a huge tour, you know, you're thinking about, you've got designers designing your lighting system and your, your um, audio and video and however many trucks that are going to need to haul that all around. Mm -hmm. So first you're deciding those things. Then once you get your plan together, you need to, and, and while you're deciding those things, you're writing the technical writers, which is basically the document that's sent to all the promoters that just spells out what they need to provide for you to have a successful day. Can and I then stop it, you right there? Uh-huh. Just because, um, and I'm not trying to interrupt, but uh -huh. so at this stage, the agent slash manager, but really the agent has set up all the dates of the tour. So maybe, Correct. Dates, maybe it's 30 dates. Yeah. I'm handing over to you, here are the dates, and now you're running with it. Is that correct? correct? Yes. Okay. And so then it'll be you're the, the one, I'm sorry, then you're talking to the band slash manager mm -hmm. and finding out what they're going to do to go Correct. on all that. Okay. Now you make yeah. it. And it's not, it's also the, they're also giving you the dates and they're giving you the guarantees, which is the, how much you're guaranteed to make each mm -hmm. day. And those fees, you, that's what you want to write your budget to. You never want to work on spec. Like, oh, we might make this much in merch. It's like, you just want to cut your coat to fit the cloth. You know, it's, you, it's like, this is how much we're making. So that kind of informs maybe what you're going to do. You know, if, if a band is getting, you know, $2,000 a night, then they're probably going to be in a van and they're going to have all their gear in the back. So um, yes, you make your decisions somewhat based on that. And then once you put it all together and you build your production writer, which again is the document that just spells out what, uh, what the promoter needs to provide for you to come in and have a successful day, you'd send that over to the promoter and then you follow up and you just go back and forth and figure out if they can get everything. They'll flag any problems. You make sure everything you make sure in advance, that's what we call it advancing, that everything is set um, so that when you walk in, there's no surprises and you can have a really good, successful day. Um, and, and that's why, you know, sometimes uh, people like students will, they always are like, I want to learn to settle. Like it's a big mystery. And honestly, mm -hmm. if you have good advance, settlement is just a pleasure because you've already built that relationship in your advancing with the promoter and you've already hashed everything out and you've worked out any potential problems before you even walk in the door. And, uh, and then you just can do the show and maybe if it's sold out and you were on point with all your numbers, you'll both make a little extra money. So the, but the advancing does take time and it takes, you know, a few weeks, even for a small tour. So you obviously you're, you may not be on the road, but you're at home working full time to make that happen. So you want to get paid for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And do you sometimes, as you're advancing, and obviously at this point, the deal's been done, so there are guarantees and all that. Then you explain, here's what the band's bringing. I need to make sure the stage's mm -hmm. big enough or, or all that. Does sometime, do you sometimes get pushed back and say, Hold, whoa, this is not what we expected. We did not expect this, this, all these different levels of promotion. Because suddenly they're saying it's going to cost us more money because now we have to get some more staff. Yes. Or yes, sometimes. But if you're working with an agent, pretty much that's been hashed out. And they'll, the agent. yeah, yeah. And they, they'll know that before they sell it. Um, the inverse has actually happened for me where a tour was sold as a full band tour and budgeted as such. And then the artist decided to go solo acoustic. And so it was budgeted for maybe having four or five people on stage and the adequate amount of crew to handle that. And it ended up being myself, the artist, front of house sound guy, monitor engineer, and a merch person. <laughs> so I've had the inverse happen actually to where all of a sudden everybody was making a bunch of money because it had been budgeted for something much bigger. And we were selling out anyway because he was really popular. So yeah, it can happen, but usually, and, and sometimes yes, it's been sold. And then all of a sudden the artist decides to do something bigger, you know? Um, it's certainly, you know, I'm thinking more of theater level, um, but it's certainly in arena level that happens for sure. They try not to have it happen, but, you know, sometimes a design, the dates may have been sold and, the des and a designer gets loose on the project before you really can get into budgeting. So you may have to pair it back on your end a little bit, you know, or there might, yeah, and you, know, you do the, some deals. Is it the designer that, determines um, how many amps are gonna be needed, the real technical stuff. Um, you know, the, the, how much power is gonna be needed for the show to work and how much um, time is gonna be necessary for load in and so on and so forth. No, what would happen is the designer will design the show and not every show has like a specific designer. I mean, the designer can be you, if on a smaller tour, the designer can be you sitting with yeah. You know, the band going, hey, what do you want the stage to look like? Or, you know, we're going to carry a little lights or, you know, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. But if it's a big tour that has a designer, not, uh, no, not, not necessarily. They would come up with the design. Um, sometimes it is the LD, the lighting director. So they would be the people that are responsible for um, building, coming up with the rig, you know, like if you're going to carry lighting, what that would take. Yeah. Sometimes it's just a designer and they have the design and then you bring in your video and audio and lighting teams and maybe lasers if you have those. And then they start to look at what it takes to execute that design. And yeah. from that, it informs what you need for power and what you need to bring and, you know, and, and that. So you bring in your technical team. So mm. that would inform it. Um, it really depends on the artist. You know, I think those of us on the, the, production and um, definitely prefer when we can lead with a budget, you know, mm -hmm. before, before there's a design because, you know, designers design and, and especially if it's specifically a designer, they're thinking creatively because that's what they do. Right. But sometimes they're not necessarily, if there's no budget yet, you know, you don't know what you're bringing in. Sometimes they're not necessarily keeping that in mind. Yeah. You know, like what, what, you know, again, cutting your coat to fit the cloth. Right. You so. said that budgeting was an art. Mm-hmm. You say that. How so? It's like Tetris. It's like playing Tetris. It really is. You know, I mean, you're plugging in your, um, you're plugging in your guarantees and you're looking at what you've, you've talked to the artist and you're looking at what you need to execute and how many people you need to execute and, you know, what type of hotels you might want to go in. There's different parameters. I've worked with an artist that they wanted their crew, it was very family oriented and they wanted all their crew to stay in the same hotel as them. You know, they wanted to stay in boutique hotels. They weren't super expensive. You know, it was like staying at Hotel Monaco, some more nice, but they wanted the crew to be with them. So that can change um, the, the story a little bit from if it's a tour where the band maybe stays at like that level of hotel and your crew to save a little money are staying at, like Holiday Inns, you mm -hmm. know, um, which is not a bad hotel at all, but you know, 
Um, and, and often crews prefer that because there's not expensive room service and stuff like that. So um, it's an art of, of finding out, getting to know your artist, uh, what they want. You know, usually they're paying more attention to like the hotels they're in or class of travel. And some artists are really on it. Like if it's a long flight, you're going international, they want their core crew to fly business because they want them to be rested, you know? Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of questions that you're looking at and you're plugging in. Um, you're taking a lot of, you know, working on your relationships and getting quotes and plugging in first and seeing how the bottom line comes out. You know, if you're going to make a, um, a profit mm -hmm. and maybe they want to try to hit a certain percentage, you know, of profit. Um, and then from there, you know, if, if you're not, if you're either in the red or you're just not hitting where you want to hit, then you have to start being creative. So it's a bit of an art. And that can be things like going to your travel. I mean, that's another thing, even before you have to pair back, you may have, you, know, you want to have a good entertainment travel agent because they're going to have those relationships and cut great deals with you at nice hotels. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of an art to it. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a dance. Um, mm -hmm. Moving things back and forth, because it's a big, big Tetris game and a lot of considering personalities considering objectives of management, you know, the, the artist, mm -hmm. what they want, right. if they want to really take, you know, extra good care of their crew and yeah. You're not involved with any of the scaling of the house or anything to make, um, the, uh, make the bottom line. Sometimes at the beginning of a tour, if you come in early enough, you can, as a tour manager or tour accountant, you're involved in those conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but not, Oh, it just depends on the tour, really. It depends on your role on the tour. You can be, you know, yeah. um, but it just really depends on the tour. Yeah, if you're involved in those, but I have been a little bit. Yeah, I have been sometimes, you know, if you're involved, and especially I think it's one of those things if you're working with an artist on a long-term, like a, an album cycle tour, you know, you're gonna start early and you maybe work coming in on the early conversations on the design and and you may be in on those conversations about scaling because you're looking at also you know the i mean that's a consideration is the production and how many seats it's going to take up yeah exactly you that's know? what i was thinking mm -hmm. yeah yeah i actually worked on a tour years ago i handled i was the i was the ticketing person i i dealt with it wasn't nowadays if you say ticketing you think vip but i was i went in and dealt with the guest list um, but what had happened was between the previous leg and when I started, they had done a redesign to open up more, um, so that the, the re the slight redesign allowed more sections to be open, mm -hmm. um, because the tour was going so well. So I would walk in, in the morning with the tour manager and the audio crew chief mainly and talk about where they could hang PA and we'd go look at seats and we'd say, where can we open? And we were opening hundreds of seats a day. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was being rescaled like on the fly. And then what I would do is go in and I would return our comps that had been held because, because of the redesign and, be, and opening of sections, I now wanted different seats for comps mm -hmm. for like the band's guests and stuff. Yeah. So I was playing a lot of moving around and, and I did that on a daily basis. And that was my job was to you know open up and then deal with relocates and but yeah it had, can have everything to do with production so it really just depends on the tour and how involved you get but quite often tour managers or tour accountants do mm -hmm. have some involvement in that mm -hmm. all right we have about six minutes left i believe so uh two questions for you one is let me let me go back to your resume because you've done a lot of things going back about 15 years dealing with art transportation management, yep. festival vehicles management. Mm -hmm. Explain all about that. What okay. is that? What I'm gonna, do we don't know all that. I'm gonna try to do the Reader's Digest version of that. So on these huge festivals, especially the one that I work on, Bonnaroo, are in the middle of nowhere. They have to have tons of rental vehicles, especially for artist transportation department who has lots and lots of um, vans. Uh, 
Bonnaroo has about 350 rental vehicles total over the course of the month. And somebody needs to stay on top of those. So when I first came in, they had just, it, they just been sort of um, renting directly from enterprise, kind of going through the artist transportation manager who couldn't really stay. I mean, she has 90 vehicles in her department. So how do you stay on top of the other 200? And um, I went in and just tightened things up. You know, it's, it's contracting, building relationships with the local vendor, rental car company, um, and just looking at how you can tighten things up. Like for example, at Bonnaroo, I realized after talking to them that there was a lot of money being eaten up um, by, you know, people would order vehicles and they would have a start date, but they would deliver the vehicles down to the site. So they were generating a contract from the minute that the car left the rental vehicle office and it would sit on site for about two days until the person got there and needed it. And so I took it upon myself to work with the um, with enterprise's sales manager and learn their system. And I realized that you can predate a contract through enterprise's system by three days. So mm. I said, well, why can't we just set up a lot on site with my office and you can deliver the vehicles and then I can log everything and we can generate the contracts on site because I knew that they had a mobile office. Mm -hmm. So I was able to, and I and I actually added some staff um, to help that all happen because we needed more hands. But the return on investment was so big because we were off of, I mean, think about it, off of 300 vehicles, you're cutting two to three days, if not more. Mm. So we saved tens of thousands of dollars. That's the kind of thing that I do for festival, festival vehicles management is if somebody's on top of it, you really can save so much, just streamline things so much more on, on the festivals. So that's, it's kind of a unique position and not too many festivals really need that, but mm -hmm. something like Bonnaroo that's sort of in the middle of nowhere and every, um, you know, there's so many rental vehicles on site for a month, there's 350. So you need somebody to manage those. And so I do that, um, I, you know, I've done it for several festivals, anywhere from 20 or 30 vehicles up to 300. So it's, it, it, again, I always keep talking about Tetris, but I love it. It's just a gigantic Tetris game <laughs> and contracting and being able to negotiate. And it's a lot of analytics, which I'm kind of geeky for. So. Uh -huh. well, that, you've, you've, you add value. Yes. A couple times you've mentioned, basically you, you just used the, the phrase, um, I took it upon myself. Mm-hmm. Something, I forget what it was earlier in our conversation where you said something similar, where you saw something needed to be done and you mm -hmm. started doing it. Mm -hmm. Explain maybe the confidence in within you or the advice you would give to listeners who many of whom are either college students or you know, and the entry level jobs in the industry. Mm -hmm. How can they think like that and recognize situations where they can add value like that? Well, I'm going to tell you in my early days, it was about not getting fired. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, if I lose money, I'm going to get fired. It was like healthy fear. I probably would have not gotten fired, but you know, you're afraid when you're younger and you're like, I got to prove that I'm good. Um, so there was that, but, but, you know, I think that um, I just kind of naturally, if you see something and you can fix it, you bring a value. If you can show that you can bring a value to something, um, and I just have this natural curiosity. I, I liked seeing the big picture. Um, and I, I like seeing patterns and processes and how I can streamline them. And I think that that serves anybody pretty well. You know, if you can, especially in a tour um, or an event, if you can streamline a process and add value, I use added value a lot because sometimes you're not necessarily saving money, mm. but you're adding value, you know, um, like, uh, you know, on the, on the festival vehicles management, I got enterprise at Bonnaroo to adjust something in the contract to where, uh, oh, they were, they were delivering vehicles for free. They weren't, they didn't drop our rates, but they stopped charging us for deliveries because we were doing such a volume. So yes, we weren't necessarily saving much more money, but we were adding value, you know? So, um, uh, it, or, you know, something I did was I got them to give us, 
to send down for two weeks, to send down two of their reps to be on site with us and work with us and bring their handheld tablets and contract on site. So that costs enterprise some money, but it's an added value to us. Mm -hmm. So I think those kind of things, just seeing ways that you can streamline things and you can add value for people. Um, don't be afraid to speak up. If you have an idea, that's probably a good idea. Like if you're working with somebody and, and, and you can see a way that it could be done better and even better if it saves money, because it's all about at the end of the day, money, money will talk. It's not always about the bottom line because you want to keep the artist happy. But if you can save some money while keeping the artist happy, usually they're going to go for that. Um, so I think it's just if you even if you think you have a crazy idea, bring it up, you know, mm -hmm. run it, run it through, you know, on paper to see if you can make it work. But, you know, if it's if it's solid, but um, and yeah, be be inquisitive about stuff. You know, I think if you're into the numbers and you're into logistics and putting things together, you're probably going to have a pretty healthy curiosity about how to make it better, because mm -hmm. that's what we do. You get into it and you're like, how can I make this better? <laughs> All, right. All right. I have a question. Mm -hmm. When the Super Bowl with Beyonce. Uh huh. When it went totally black and everybody mm -hmm. was using the the idea that somebody tripped over the big extension cord <laughs> that was from the building next door. But did did you did anybody ever learn what really happened in that? I don't know what happened. I do not know what happened. No, no clue. <laughs> I mean, just could is there any protection to that? That the whole There should be. There should be a generator, like a backup generator, but I don't. I really don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I feel, you know, I don't even think I knew anybody who was working on that particular Super Bowl. I usually do, but I don't know that I know anybody who was huh. working on that. So I don't, I honestly don't know. All right. Have you any done any uh, lecturing at the uh, UC Denver, their music business program? I have not. Wow. No. Guys there. There are, there are a few good guys. Storm Gore's there, um, Dave. I yeah, would like she's, to. She's going to be doing some lecturing for us, though, at William Patterson University. Yes. Let's talk about that. Okay. Yeah, so she's going to be part of a summer class that looks like we're going to get through that she's going to do with uh, David 5-1 Norman. Yeah, that'd be great. And, yeah, and 5-1's yeah, awesome. actually the one who introduced us in the first place. And I met David through uh, Tour Management 101. So why don't you give your podcast a plug real quick, too? Yeah. Well, webinar. It's not an official podcast, okay. but yeah, webinar. We, so we do tour management 101. Um, it is, it was twice a week, but we've moved it to just once a week on Mondays. Um, and it is geared towards people that want to be tour managers or are tour managers and want to get better. And we try to answer the questions, especially in the early episodes. What would I have wanted to know when I was first starting out? Wow. And it took me about 10 years to learn. And we, we have a core panel of seven of us. And um, we bring on our friends and colleagues. And sometimes, you know, one person knows them and the rest of us get to meet them. And we've brought in some legends to, to share how they do whatever the topic is. Sometimes we've just done conversations with these legends, um, but it gives students access to information and also just faces of some people that may have taken us decades to come across. Mm -hmm. So, and that is on Zoom, but you can go to tourmanagement.org and register for them. And it's also on uh, Tour Management 101 uh, YouTube. We have them all, all archived there. And uh, on our website, we also have loads of free templates that you can download because we are sh all share templates in this business anyway. Like we all kind of poach each other's day sheets and, yeah. you know, budgets and use those to learn from. So we're like, well, we should just share them for free. So there's lots of stuff on there. All right. Great. It's, it's, it's great stuff. And a quick um, prayer actually for Jim Rungi. Hmm a member yes. of Tour Management 101 who uh, got married a few weeks ago and then he had a stroke over this past weekend. He did. He did. He got married three uh -huh. weeks ago and had a stroke last week. Oh, God. So, yeah. yeah. So he's recovering. He did actually go home today. So today Good. being, yeah. Yeah. Good. So he went, he went home today. He's sort of legendary in a way. Uh, for, he is. In the, in the tour manager sort of world. He yeah. is. 
he's the tormentor everybody knows because he's always in a suit but yeah he is legendary yes that's right. great so you're becoming a legend mary joe and we <laughs> thank you for spending all this time yeah, with us. thanks a lot it's great yeah, thank you for having me yeah this is awesome and, uh, i hope we didn't bore you no absolutely not it was great you kept me on my toes it's like oh, i sound true. like i know what i'm talking about <laughs> and it's funny if you don't so that's that's the good thing i know uh, hopefully our listeners realize don't listen to any of this don't try any of this at home i riff really well <laughs> so dr esteban we should end this real quick so we, okay uh, thank you to our listeners and at the end of every show what do we say dr esteban Stein. That's right. We say adios. So Mary Jo, at the count of three, choose whether you want to scream or yell adios or Alvederstein. <laughs> adios is probably better. So ready? One, two, three. Adios. Alvederstein. I've traveled way too far to lose myself. I've been through hell and back. I'm back. I battle tainted minds, misconceptions of my kind. Leave them guessing all the time who I am. I'm tired of keeping quiet Today I break my silence Yell it like a siren Sisters on me, keep our composure, you'll see, ready like soldiers. Smile like you have baby of the mustang. What they really see.